Baruch Hashem Yahweh. So we are in chapter, well not chapter, but part two of our Book of the Law um, series this week. You may remember I started off last week, and I hope I was able to do this, but again, a lot of um, people have been coming and drawing false conclusions based upon a faulty premise that we have ripped out the Book of the Law, it has no relevance in um, one's life. And in fact, I was thinking, isn't that the very charge that was given to um, against the um, apostles and the disciples? I remember Stephen in Acts chapter 6 in particular, they, they rose up false witnesses and said, this man has been teaching that um, you're going to get rid of um, the Levitical um, ordinances, destroy this place, And that there's a change of law, the customs and teachings of Moses, Hebrews 7.11 and Hebrews 7.12. And I thought, we are actually being levied with the same charge as what was charged the apostles. This is a very good indication that we are on the narrow road that leads to life. But many of the charges are based upon false witness account of what we haven't actually been saying which is, again, establishing a false premise and then drawing a false conclusion. So we started off last week, what does abolish mean? And we went into the origin of the word abolish in the book of Ezra, chapter 4 and chapter 5, which I thought was most important in establishing biblical words through the Bible, not through our 21st century Western Gentile mindset. Because we want to know what Bible words mean biblically, not what the culture would tell us they mean. Right? So this is extremely important. Otherwise, we can get into a lot of error. So last week, we spent quite a bit of time establishing biblically, scripturally, what this ministry is teaching regarding the book of the law, regarding what abolish means, what obsolete means, what done away with means, and what it doesn't mean. But you'll remember last week, I finished up with um, looking at this Hebrew word chabar, which means dovetailing or coupling. Because if we have the book of the covenant, and then we had the later imposed book of the law, that they are separate and distinct. And that's a big misconception as people would say, no, that they're the same. Well, firstly and foremost, they're two totally different, separate and distinct Hebrew words. Not only in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint. And in the New Testament, we have three textual witnesses that the word, book of the law, and the words, book of the covenant, are absolutely distinct. Now, if they were the same, then why wouldn't they be the same word? Then, of course, we have the witness of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, where we know that the book of the law was put in a pocket outside of the ark of the covenant because inside would be the book of the covenant, Aaron's rod that budded, and the um, jar of manna. 
So it was called the Ark of Covenant for a reason, because it had the tablets of stone, and of course, it contained the covenant. So inside is very different than outside. That is a cause of separation. And we'll go into that more next week in the separateness of these distinct, distinct laws. Both are laws. One was imposed, another was agreed to. These are very important things. But today I want to jump back in to number six on our point of chabah, dovetailing or coupling. The Hebrew word comes from the um, Hebrew Strong's number 2266, and it means, like I said last week, to join together, to couple, to have fellowship with. We're looking at the outworking of our faith. If the book of the covenant establishes our foundation, then how do we deal with the rest of the scripture, including the book of the law, because we know that all scripture is for doctrine and reproof. But that doesn't mean that we're going to bring in the administration of a Levitical mindset or priestly administration into the administration of the New Testament under Yahushua. So we have to clarify and identify distinction in administration, which we covered extensively last week, which is huge. Administration, underlined and all caps. So we know that we do have fellowship with Elohim, the inspiration of his word, because his word is prophet for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in zadakah, righteousness, which are all found in Scripture. New Testament, Old Testament, Book of the Law, Book of the Covenant, the writings, the Psalms, everything is all edifying for us. Yet, we do not have fellowship with another priesthood under another administration and other sacrifices. That's the key point that we must understand because that would be called Judaizing, which has been around for 2,000 or so years. There is nothing new under the sun. So another big misconception and false teaching is that you can keep the whole of the law, you deny the change of law that the New Testament says has happened, Hebrews 7, 11, and 12, and then you say, no, we're going to keep the whole of the law, but you get to bring Yahushua with you. Well, Judaism says, no, that's not true, rightly so. Christianity says, no, that's not true. That's called Judaizing. And the Bible says, no, that's not so. So you can either say there is no change of the law, then you have the false religion of Judaism, or you acknowledge the biblically mandated Genesis 49.10, until Shiloh comes... There's going to be a change of the law because when Shiloh comes, enacts the until clause, doesn't it? According to Hebrews 7, 11, and 12. So you either acknowledge the change in law in line with Scripture or you deny it and you are actually in the religion of Judaism. 
But you can't straddle both and say, hey, let's bring Yahusha into a no change of law. Because Christianity rightly called that out 2,000 years ago as Judaizing. Because the reality is, Judaism will never allow Yahushua into that religion. And you'll lose him along that way. And there is the danger that I have witnessed for over 10 years in the Hebrew roots of Messianic movement. And that's why this message is being taught. It's the message that the disciples taught, hence why we are being levied with the same false witness accusations. You're doing away and ripping out the whole of the law. But we're not. We're rightly dividing the word of truth and acknowledging a change in law and the correct administration under Yahushua, our high priest. And with that comes the responsibility of Chabah dovetailing and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, point number six, people bring up oftentimes the sixth principle of Chabah is the topic of divorce. Can you divorce your wife? Well, what did Yahushua say? Mark chapter 10, verse 5. From the beginning, Yahushua now is referencing what? The book of the law or the book of the covenant? He's referencing now the book of the covenant. From the beginning, this wasn't so. So before the golden calf breach, was divorce allowed? No. What was the first divorce that you see on a national level? Israel broke the marriage covenant. So the whole thing associated with divorce is what? A hardness of heart which leads to a spirit of idolatry. So it wasn't always that way. So Yahushua references the book of the covenant and he says, from the beginning, this wasn't so. Because it was only, divorce was only admitted post-golden calf breach in the book of the law, Deuteronomy 24. But from the beginning, it was never in the book of the covenant because Yahweh was always been about covenant faithfulness. But then, because of the hardness of your heart, then Yahushua points us, I'm getting tongue-tied, he points us back to the book of the covenant perfection, does he not? Therefore, he says, what Elohim hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So the short answer Is divorce permissible for us under the administration of Yahushua? The sure answer, no. Now, the long answer, if you choose to live outside covenant with Yahuwah, if you choose to live under the book of the law with its blessings and multiple cursings, Opting out of covenant with your spouse, opting out of covenant with Yahuwah, 
giving yourself over to your hard heart, then yes. In your hardness of heart, you may even think that divorcing your wife or your husband is a blessing. But when you talk to your children, you'll actually find out it was a curse. So again, we have mercy, but really, what is Yahushua pointing us back to? No. Unless you want to have a hard heart and live in broken covenant, not only with your spouse, but with the Creator Himself. Because a restoration through Yahushua means no, you don't have that option. Because your heart is supposed to be circumcised and in covenant. Because it was always meant to be that way. Right? If we're truly into a restoration ministry. So the seventh point of Chabar or dovetailing that people say, well, in the book of the covenant, the Malkitzedic, do we keep Shabbat? Well, yes, of course. Shabbat is found in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. It's foundational book of the covenant administration commandment. Then it's expounded on even more in the 10 words, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. And then it's expanded on even more throughout the book of the law, is it not? Now, how do we live? Of course, we keep Shabbat because that is both foundational in Book of the Covenant reality. Another question, point number eight, people will say, well, well what do we do? Do we, do we keep the feasts in the Malkitzedic? Well, the feasts of Yahuwah are found in the Book of the Covenant, Exodus chapter 23. In fact, highlighted the three annual ascension feasts or pilgrimage feasts, which then are expanded upon in much more detail in the Book of the Law. So yes, we do keep the biblical feasts for sure and for certain, especially the three ascension feasts. And then there's an expansion with further instruction in Leviticus chapter 23 about the other biblical feasts. But we must remember, especially when we get to Yom Kippur, about the administration the administration, because if there's one feast that is saturated with a Levitical administration, it's Yom Kippur. So that is a memorial, but you must, must associate its memorial with the work of redemption. When Yahushua, remember, he was met in the garden and he said, don't touch me. Yet, just a few days later, he says, hey, you have little belief. You come stick your finger inside my side, right? What happened? He went and performed the whole Yom Kippur service in the heavenlies before the Father. And he placed his blood upon the throne. And then, when then, he came down and Thomas could put his finger in his side. So it has been totally completed and filled up in Yahushua under that administration of Melchizedek. So you have to be very cautious when you observe Yom Kippur, not to be getting into Judaism and swinging chickens or getting into all of this crazy stuff that is of a 
Levitical administration. Remember him coming out of the tomb as the gardener. Don't touch me. I have not yet ascended and performed the Yom Kippur work on the altar in the heavenlies. Then post that work, Thomas, you are now able to handle me. Very important that we understand that administration. The one that everybody's been waiting for, got emails this week. Are you going to touch on kosher, what we eat? The ninth point of chabar, coupling or dovetailing, is diet. It's found in the book of the covenant. Genesis chapter 1, 6, and 9, and then expanded on in great detail in the book of the law, Leviticus chapter 11. I'm going to be looking at Lisa today because um, if she's tracking, then we're good. If the school teacher's tracking last week, she said, I really tracked with you every point. I was like, really? So now I'm, I'm looking for thumbs up, thumbs down. All right, okay. Genesis one twenty nine. Let's turn there. Yahweh told Adam and Eve at the very beginning in the creation, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed. So, you know, now I'm wondering what are we going to do with the mushrooms? What happens with the seaweed in my sushi? My salmon sushi. I'm wondering about that. But that's just me. Should I eat that stuff? doesn't bear seed, does it? Okay, so that's something I'm, I'm wondering about the mushrooms. I love And I do like good kosher um, sushi. Behold, I have given you every green herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, for food. Now later... In the book of the covenant part of Torah, Yahweh does stipulate that the green plant is given for food. Genesis chapter 9 verse 3. Yahweh did in fact limit edible plants to those that are green and propagate seeds. Which is why I'm wondering about the shiitakes and the seaweed in my sushi. So that's another thing. But Yahweh also told Noah that clean animals were to go aboard the ark by sevens. This is in the book of the covenant. But then he was to limit the unclean to only two. So if you open up your children's Bible and there's two sheep and two pigs, we've got a problem with the artist, okay? I don't know how many times we saw that growing up as kids in Sunday school, right? They all went into the ark two by two. No, there were sevens of the sheep and two of the oinky oinks, right? So again, do you see how they set us up to live like the pagan nations from childhood, So, again, Yahweh told Noah that clean animals were to go in by sevens and the unclean were limited to two, Genesis 7 verse 2. So Noah had to know that there was a distinction between clean and unclean. Tahor and Tameh in the Hebrew. Genesis 9.3 Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. 
Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, my Sunday school teacher would come up to see, we can have a luau. Everything. But no, because now we're reading our own thoughts into the text. Because the Bible doesn't actually state that. And the problem, I have to wade through so much stuff when people contact the ministry online because they make these huge, big jumps without slowing things down. And I'm wondering if it's a product of a government educational system where we weren't taught or we weren't taught to really, really look at what is written or reading comprehension. So I'm just wondering whether it's the reading comprehension that people had earlier in the public school systems that is now failing them later on in life. Because it's basic reading comprehension to me But again, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying I see this and I see it a lot making these huge jumps. And I'm going, but the Bible doesn't state that. Surely we can just look and comprehend what it does say and not say things that it doesn't. Let's read the text again because it doesn't say that you can go and have a luau. It does say everything that lives and moves for you will be food. Just as I gave you the green plants Just as I gave you the green plants is the kicker, right? Reading comprehension, I now give you everything. So everything has now been defined by the change from a plant-only diet to a new diet consisting of plants and animals. That is the everything, But that doesn't mean that you can eat every animal any more than you could eat every plant. There's Noah. Oh, he says to his missus, go get me a poison berry salad and some. get some of that poison ivy. No, he wasn't eating every plant. It's the plant that is food for you. In the Greek, the word is broma, that which must be eaten. Just as if every animal isn't food for you, only that which can be eaten is defined as food. Does that make sense? Okay, because again, this is reading comprehension 101, but I think because we've been in these pagan nations, many of us have had, you know, I was blessed enough, well, it really wasn't a blessing at the time, but now I think it was, to have a private um, education, But I think that, you know, the school system has failed. That's the trouble. Because it comes up again and again and again. And I'm like, I only have to read it once and it's right there for me. So again, we have to understand that the everything doesn't mean one could eat every animal any more than one could eat every plant. Because we look at the passage and it's concerning the original vegetable diet. I have given every green herb for food and it was so. Genesis chapter 1 verse 30. Now, every green herb above doesn't mean every single existing green herb. It means every green herb that is appropriate for you to eat. Because, again, we're not going to be having poison berry and poison ivy salads. 
That would be crazy. Genesis 6 verse 21. And take thou unto thee of all the food that is eaten. There's the key. And gather it to thee and it shall be for food for thee and for them. So Noah is commanded in the book of the covenant. This is all book of the covenant. To take all of the edible foods into the ark. So then not every green herb was edible, right? You can deduct that from the text. Only every green herb given for food was edible. Leave the poison ivy, leave the berries. That's not going to be good if you bring them into the ark. We're going to have a mess. Even those in the all Torah movement, you know, We've got to keep all the Torah. There is no change of law, Hebrews 7, 11, 7, 12. They often don't know what to do with commands that even do appear within the very book of the law. That's the problem. Here's a case in point, one that comes up many, many times over the years. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 22. Even as the roebuck and the heart is eaten, so thou shalt eat them, the unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. Now, the crazy ideas people come up with this verse is because, again, the school system has failed us, I'm thinking. And again, people make these massive jumps and start saying, oh, this means X, Y, and Z, and we can eat this if we hunted it. We can do that. And it's like, let's read the Bible verse. This is in the book of the law. Even as the roeback and the heart is eaten, so thou shalt eat them. The unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. What's this talking about? This is talking about ritually clean and unclean people within your community? Everybody, bring them in. They all get to eat of your food. The clean and the unclean alike. It's talking about the people, if you read the context of the Bible, ritually clean and unclean people shall be allowed to eat of the spoil within your gates. Yahweh is never going to contradict his word. If we think that he is, the problem is with us and our comprehension, not with him and his word. He will never contradict himself. Never, and there is never a clause for contradiction. Not even once in the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Not once. So again, we have to slow things down before making rash conclusions. So again, this is very important. Because the so-called Noahide laws earlier in Genesis chapter 9 are expanded on in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. And they are later expanded again and put under a Levitical administration, including administrative sacrifices that are non-binding. So in short, yes, we are supposed to only eat of the clean animals which is found in the book of the covenant premise established and later expanded on by animal in Leviticus 11, much more detail given. Does that make sense? Because this is a big one. It's a big one that comes up all the time. But again, 
and I'm repeating myself, but I have really been pondering because I'm like, what is going on, Father? Am I, am I in error in my communication and teaching style? And I know that I have many faults, but I'm, why are these questions coming that to me it's very clear and apparent and the only conclusion that I can draw is literally it's reading comprehension. And I'm not saying that to try and belittle or, or uh, please, please hear my heart. I'm trying to figure this out so that I can be a better teacher. But it has to be. Because a lot of this stuff, if we slow it down, but maybe we're not slowing things down and we're just rushing headlong and jumping, making huge big gaps in our, our understanding. Well, you'd know. I mean, you're a public school teacher. Do you think I'm right or wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. Do you think that that is maybe? You're not just agreeing. She wouldn't just agree with me, would she? She's your wife. There's no way. A silly question. He'd never agree with me. Again, go back to Genesis 9, look at the so-called Noahide laws, and let's look at some of those principles that are found now in the book of the covenant that are later expanded on in great detail in the book of the law, Chabah, dovetailing, and then we'll even find them in Acts chapter 15. Um, Genesis chapter 9, you'll find the passage there about the Noahide laws thus called. Number one. We're not to worship idols or other gods, right? Number two, do not blaspheme Yahuwah's name. Number three, do not murder. Number four, do not commit sexual immorality. Number five, do not steal. Number six, do not eat things while they're still alive, i.e. meat with blood in it. Very bad. And number seven, establish courts of justice. These are the infamous or the famous, I should say. I say infamous because it's not really called the Noahide laws. And Judaism will then say, well, you know, you Gentiles, you only get to keep the seven Noahide laws. Well, that's baloney. So that's where this comes from. But the text is the text. We don't have to go with their, um, you know, inferior, you're a Gentile, when we know that we are Israel, um, Galatians 6.16, right? So we have the seven Noahide laws, but the last one was established courts of justice. Where are courts of justice established? Foundationally in the book of the covenant, Exodus chapter 21 through 2411. So this is all covenant Malkitzetic code, which is then further expanded. So yeah, we're not supposed to worship idols. Yeah, we're not supposed to blaspheme the name of Yahweh. We're not supposed to murder, commit sexual immorality. And if you want to find out all of those nasty things you're not supposed to do, there's a lot more information in the book of the law in Leviticus 20, right? If you really can stomach reading it. But the foundational premise, a lot of these things are found in Genesis chapter 9. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles, they literally go through the Genesis 9 narrative taught in the book of the covenant. Believers in Yahushua should also keep the commandments of proper worship. Go to the feasts of Yahuwah. Go to the synagogue on Shabbat and listen to Moshe Rabbeinu. You're prohibited from ingesting blood. You're not supposed to eat improperly slaughtered meat. Things contaminated by um, contact with idolatry. And people will contact me and say, you know, uh, 
what do you do with halal? I don't eat halal. I will not eat meat that has been sacrificed to Allah. And then people will quote Paul in Corinthians. No. Acts chapter 15 is very strict that we do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, people will say, well, what about these rabbis that, you know, they don't know Yahushua? No, they are following the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (laughs) They're not following the moon god sin. So you can't compare kosher rabbinical meat to halal. One is serving the god of demons. The other, they just haven't come to know Messiah. And they are what? Many of the synagogue of Satan. But we have to understand that Yahweh establishes kosher, what is holy, in the Bible. So you can't compare rabbinical meat to halal meat. They're totally disparate. So I will not eat halal. I'd rather eat vegetables to those of you that have contacted and um, over the years. And that's a hard position to be in, especially if you live in Pakistan or India. Very hard, you know. But I, I mean, just recently, a few days ago, I went and got um, some stir-fried um, vegetables and rice from a Thai restaurant, and I would not allow myself to stand there or sit in the restaurant and wait for my to-go order because there were too many idols, and I'm not going to sit underneath an idol. I'm just not. Now, people say, well, you're weak in conscience. No, I'm sensitive in conscience. I would rather stand outside of the restaurant But that's just me. So I'm very sensitive to that. Why? Because I grew up around all kinds of idolatry. So therefore I'm sensitive. I'm a byproduct of my... um, How I was raised, right? And now I, I abhor it. So I have very strict... um, A strict conscience. Does that make sense? You know... So anyway, um, let's look at the tenth administrative thing with the um, Chabah, because really the question that we're really all asking is, now how do we live? How do we now live? We really need to learn to rightly divide the word of Torah under the Malkitzedic administration. And we need to apply the change of law that is established in the Torah, Genesis 49.10, and then expanded upon in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. To deny a change of the law or a change in law is the definition of the false religion, Judaism. Even Christianity acknowledges a change in law. Now, they've taken it to the other extreme and said it's done away with, but they do acknowledge and validate the New Testament that there's a change in law. What we're teaching is saying, yes, there is a change in law, Genesis 49 verse 10, Hebrews 7, 11, and 12. The rightly dividing point of that change in law is administration. The administration of righteousness, which is the book of covenant, law contained in covenant, as opposed to law imposed upon in ordinances. That's it. 
But the false charge of Acts 6.11 is levied against me. And this ministry which encourages me that we truly are on that right road. I'm being charged with the same charge that the apostles and Stephen was charged with before he was killed. By false witnesses. We are living in this generation and blessed to have navigated this to this point. And there's far more revelation coming. And we've punched through the wall. And people are influxing and influxing towards this Malkitsetic message from all over the world. And the Judaizing message of the Messianic and Hebrew roots is plummeting. Plummeting. And Christianity is getting hungrier and saying we can see the syncretism and the paganism all around us. We need biblical righteousness. How do we get there? Well, we've got to keep doing the work that we've been called to do. Acknowledging Yahushua in his Malkitsetic message and keeping the commandments of Yahweh, having the testimony of Messiah rightly dividing the word of truth into its proper administration. So I'm encouraged. I really am. So let's continue because now there's some hot button topics. You'll notice I'm not that clean shaven, but I do shave. And the hot button topics, of course, I was a messianic teacher for a decade. I used to have a long beard. Can you imagine what happened one day when I showed up here all moisturized and clean shaven? Can you imagine the comments? That's why we disable the comments on the YouTube. Sorry. But this baby smooth skin, it's not so smooth anymore, but it used to be. Beards is a hot topic, isn't it? Comes up, whoa, what about that? That's in the book of the law. Do we not do beards? Are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do. It's a, it's a commandment, you know. Okay, let's slow this down again. Let's hit now on a few hot topic items In the book of the law, beards. There is actually no command against men's grooming in the Bible. I know many would like, because it's a great visual sign of being religious, isn't it? Right? Many will trip over their beards. There's nothing wrong with having a nice, big, bushy beard. I would like to have had one, but mine was always spindly anyway. But there is no command against men's grooming in the Bible. There is no command against shaving or cutting your hair in the Bible. Shaving of beards is a command associated with what? The mourning rites of the pagans accompanied by the cutting of the body and the ripping out of the hair and the tearing of the beard. So we shouldn't cut ourselves with violence and we shouldn't rip out of our hair um, in mourning rites any more than you should cut and tear your body in pagan mourning rites in violence because that is plain sun god worship. Context. Men's grooming, shaving, and of trimming of the head and beard is completely acceptable. Remember the Nazarite? Yahweh doesn't contradict himself. The Nazarite, it's completely acceptable to take the Nazarite vow in Bar Midbar, Numbers chapter 6, and do what? To do the very thing that Yahweh abhors? 
No, he doesn't abhor men's grooming. He abhors pagan sun god worship. But to take a vow and get into some men's grooming is no problem whatsoever. So to determine a blanket interpretation that the cutting of the sides of the hair is always unacceptable is to pretend that the context of the Bible is unimportant. But context is everything which is what I spend my whole life trying to determine. And I have to slow things down. But I love that because when I slow things down in my life, that's when I get into my wife's going to be like, that, I need that because I'm like jacked up. But when I get in the, <laughs> when I get in the Bible, it's t- that's my meditation. That's when my heart rate lowers. That's when all of the endorphins start to kick in. And that's when I feel just like in nirvana. Am I allowed to say that or is that pagan? I'm sure I'll find And Yeah, I will find out. Another hot button topic is what? Oh, come on. Matthew was in the Jim Staley video teaching the Malkit Zedek and he had Seatsy on hanging off the corner of the chair with the red shoes. And then a few weeks later, what's going on? And I've had people say, the reason that we tuned into Torah to the tribes is like, we saw you then and we see you now. And we're like, what changed? Seatsy. Let's look at Seatsy because that's a very interesting Book of the Law Ordinance. But let's look at it. Numbers 5 verse 37. To remember all the commands is the purpose of Sitsi. To remember all the commands and seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye used to go a whoring. Does it say anything about looking cool? Does it say anything about your wardrobe? Does it say anything about fashion or religious garb whatsoever? The whole purpose is what? To keep the commandments. That's the purpose. So seats seat were given post-golden calf because the children of Israel needed what? They needed a visible outward sign because they'd already broken the covenant. Some were so hard-hearted that they wouldn't even keep the Shabbat. The ordinance, the command for seat seats is on the back of the guy breaking Shabbat because he wanted to go get some sticks. He was so hard-hearted that he wouldn't even keep the Sabbath. They were in a very bad state. The purpose of Sitsi is to remind you a visible outward sign because your heart is as hard as stone that you can't even keep the Sabbath. Not that you can't, but you won't because you have a rebellious heart. That you're so rebellious that you're, you're only a, a, a few days outside of Egypt and your heart, you've just seen a miracle upon miracles. But no, your heart is so hard, you've got to construct the Apis bull in gold and dance and fornicate before it because your heart is so hard and made of stone. We're literally going to have to give you a visible sign to remind you that when you're about to 
take your clothes off to perform those immoral, iniquitous acts that you'll stop. But it doesn't work. Because I've known people who've literally been wearing seat seats as they've committed adultery on their wives. So it doesn't work if it's not circumcised here. The visible sign is the best thing that Yahweh had for an iniquitous, hard-hearted generation. But the reality is there's something better. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 10, tells us there's a way better way to get the best result. The result is Yahweh wants us to keep the commands. Now, if you think that wearing the seat seat is better than having a circumcised heart and the tablets not written on stone but written on your heart in the new covenant, then go ahead. But I can tell you what, when my heart is turned towards Yahuwah, it penetrates my mind. Because if you even start looking at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. So it's, it's bigger than the fabric. It's got to be here that changes here that then affects here, right? Because I used to, when I was a pagan, like the smell of bacon. Now the smell of it is repulsive to me. Why? Because he changed my heart. It affected my mind that changed my senses that now my hands don't want to reach for it. That's how true conversion works. It starts with the heart, which changes the mind, which affects the senses, including your sexual senses, that then changes your actions. Right? So, again, slowing this down, seat seat had a purpose, and a very good purpose, but the main purpose is Yahuwah wants us to keep the commandments. Seat seat were given post golden calf because the children of Israel needed a visible outward sign because they'd broken the covenant. They wouldn't even keep Shabbat, some of them. But in the post resurrection and new covenant reality, we have to ask ourselves the question what is more effective? What is more effective? The administration of threads or the administration of commands on the heart? That should be self-evident. Which one will produce the desired effect of keeping the commandments of Yahuwah more effectively is the point, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with wearing seat seats. But religion is when you make your opinion my burden. So let's keep your religion out of my closet and out of my shaving kit. Okay? These are just things that I've come up with over the past decade that are the hot-button topics, and there's more. But Hebrews 8.10 does tell us, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Of course, he's quoting Jeremiah. After those days, says Yahweh, I will put my laws into their mind and write them upon their hearts. That's the purpose. That's what makes you keep the commands. That's what makes you keep the commands. An amazing testimony. I will share this because I am proud of what Yahweh has done in my life. But I remember right after being converted, 
taking filthy, lewd material, because I was a heathen, and literally going outside and setting it on fire and burning it and being done. Being done. Nobody had to tell me that. I knew because I was converted. That was it. That was iniquitous, and I burnt it out in the driveway. That is conversion, and never to look back. Praise Yahuwah. That's how it works. Yes, I wore seed seats for a decade. Praise Yahuwah. I've been able to go now through and see what is the greater thing that is trying to be um, communicated here. And quite honestly, it was when that seat seat wearing messianic committed adultery on his wife. While he, I asked him if he was wearing them, he said yes. That made me go, oh, this, that really started to make me drill down even further that has brought me to this conclusion. So, you know, even Yahuwah will use what Satan would use for destruction, will even use it for glory, for the greater good. Right? That's redemption. We're sorry that some fall along the way. Right? But that's their decision and choice. There's others that will be raised up because of a man's falling. Isn't that how the Father works? How many times have you seen that? People fall down. And then you try and help them up and they won't get up. So then, you know, you carry on. And then the testimony of the guy who fell down actually brings six or seven people into the fold. That is the mercy of the Father in heaven. The mercy. How come I'm standing here, yet I know of half a dozen that are in the grave that I used to walk with? I'm no more righteous. Most probably more iniquitous. Wow. That just keeps me and should keep you in this position of he is a merciful Elohim, is he not? And we only have a short time to do a grand work. We don't have time to mess around with that stuff. So, again, my admonition is keep your religion to yourself because your opinion becomes my burden. And that's the definition of religion, isn't it, really? So let's close with a few of these very encapsulating thoughts about the book of the law. I hope, are we, are we tracking still? Okay, school teacher from the public school system is tracking, but she's no longer in the public school system. She is in the Torah education system here at Torah to the tribes next door and with her own children, and they are beautiful children too. Free, yes, freedom, freedom. Few encapsulating thoughts. No covenants are that are under the Levitical priesthood. There are covenants in the book of the law. And people will try and lump covenants, but look at it. No covenants in the book of the law, Exodus 24, 11 forward, are blood ratified. None of them have a proposal, an acceptance a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. So you can't say that they're part of the book of the covenant because they do not have the blood ratification. There's salt covenant, shoe covenants, there's the Exodus 34 covenant, but you'll notice blood is void. Blood is void. So you can't lump covenants. A covenant is something that is agreed to by two or more people, right? Now, The book of the law was never agreed to, was it? So is it a covenant? It's an imposed law action. Do or die. Right? 
wipe out Israel, I'd rather have Moses. Please, Father, don't wipe out Israel. I'd rather you have them. Okay, I'll impose a law on them that they never agreed to. That's not a covenant. The book of the law is an imposed law action. Again, we have to slow these things down, but there's clear boundaries. You cannot impose an agreement. We didn't exchange one taskmaster, Pharaoh, for another, Yahuwah. That's preposterous. While you can impose law, you cannot impose an agreement on which a covenant is based, right? Yahuwah didn't engage with the people with whom he was making the book of the law directly. Yahuwah, in fact, set up a perimeter between him and the people in which only the Levites were able to function, showing us that the already in-function Levitical priesthood, you'll have to cross-reference this with Numbers 3.12 and Exodus 34, demonstrate that this was a bloodless law action that was put under the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 7.11 verifies this, and it was not a Malkitzedic covenant of promise. Ephesians 2.12 verifies that. There's so much scriptural evidence to what's being taught here that it's astounding. And what I do find is when articles are written against the Malkitzedic message, you will find that there is a huge amount of opinion with very little scriptural substance. You'll notice that. It's a common, common thread. And when we respond to articles, you'll notice it's just like so much scripture because it is literally everywhere. It's paramount that we all understand the distinction between the initial blood covenant with the first set of tablets. Listen to this because there's a huge false teaching going around about this misunderstanding, the first tablets and the second tablets. The first tablets, of course, and the second tablets. The first tablets were what? We see it's paramount that we understand the distinction between the initial blood covenant with the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets that was not a blood covenant. You heard me say it. The second set of tablets was not blood ratified. This distinction of blood and no blood between the first tablets and the second set of tablets identifies that they cannot be one and the same. So if somebody comes along and tries to attribute the work of Messiah, which is a blood action, with the second set of tablets, is it false teaching? For sure and for certain. You can only chabar link blood action with blood action. You cannot link Yahushua's redemptive blood action with the second set of tablets that were a void of blood action, right? This is basic, basic common sense. 
when we read the whole of the Bible. But the first tablets, of course, were with blood action. Hebrews tells us, because remember, he took, there was the altar, the scroll, and there was the sprinkling of it all. That wasn't some neat little sprinkling. If you look at the laws of sprinkling in Leviticus chapter 14, the expansion, it was a messy thing. Everything would have got blood on it, including the scroll, including the altar, because the stone altar is where the scroll would have been put. Some people read um, the latter chapters of Hebrews and say, well, it doesn't say that the scroll got blood on it. Well, it does say that in Hebrews. But when you actually go back to the text in Exodus 19 to 24, it doesn't specifically state that the book of the covenant got blood on it. But when you look at the law of the sprinkling, it was, you know, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. So again, it's paramount that we understand these things. Galatians later identifies to us that what law was added at Exodus chapter 24, 12, after the ratified book of the covenant, Galatians doesn't mention the five books of Moses. Now, the traditional Christian position is what? That the law of Moses is done away with. But Galatians doesn't mention the five books of Moses. That, that's, that's the problem that we're finding on one side of the narrow road, right? But then the other side of the narrow road is Messianic Judaism that says, it's the oral law that's done away with. But Galatians doesn't mention the oral law. What does it mention by name? Galatians 3.10. The book of the law that was abolished. See, this is very, very, very huge because we have to understand the right dividing point. It is Galatians 3.10, identified as the book of the law by name. Galatians 3 verse 17 informs us that the law, now identified seven verses earlier, came 430 years later and was after the covenant. After the book of the covenant. This identifies that the law that was added in Exodus chapter 24 verse 12. After the blood ratified covenant was confirmed was in fact verse 10 in Galatians chapter 3. The book of the law. The law added in Exodus 24 verse 12 can only be the book of the law according to Paul's communication to the Galatians. And then it's confirmed in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. So this is the threading of that red cord, blood redemption versus non-blood redemption, non-blood ratification. I love this scripture. We close with this. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Not as Moshe, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So this whole teaching is about defining that, yes, the book of the law is abolished, 
But what does the abolishment clause mean? It doesn't mean tearing out the word of Yahweh and destroying it. It's all about administration. Ezra chapter 4, Ezra chapter 6 establishes the premise for abolished. But their minds were blinded for until this day, still today, remaineth the same veil. Literally, how many of you have tried to communicate this message with people? And it's literally like a veil is still untaken away in their reading of the Old Testament. You know what it is? Again, I'm guessing, you know, I'm surmising. Many people are religious. And if you came from a system, I see, I didn't grow up in the church. So I didn't have a lot of church baggage to unlearn. But if you came from a system where it was all and nothing, how easy is it to the pendulum to swing the other way? Well, now it's all and nothing. So over here, it's all of the law is abolished. We're now in Christ under grace. Christian dispensationalism. But hang on a minute, you start to see the paganism seeping in because you're a Bible reader, you're devout, and you know something's up. You can smell the fish. So then you go, aha, we're done. We come over here. It's all of the Torah and none of that paganism. Except we'll we'll do the Purim, totally pagan. We'll do Hanukkah, totally pagan. But it's Jewish pagan, so that's okay. And now we've got all and nothing, except if it's Jewish pagan. But really, we've got to jump here. Did you like that? The narrow road of right administration. So I'm thinking it's just because the mind hasn't changed from the all or nothing doctrine. Because that is Greek linear Western thinking, isn't it? And it's easy. You don't have to spend that much time on it. Kick it off, clear the table, this is what we're doing. Ah, forget it. Bring it on back on the table, clear that off, this is what we're doing. But really, it's in the marination where the truth and the flavor comes out. And that takes time. Not microwave faith, but crockpot faith. (laughs) I'm telling you. Look at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 13. A, the Jewish veil of confusion in reading the Old Testament is that most Jews understand that the law of Moses preserved the lives of Israel for violation of the covenant. Most Jews do not fully recognize that the law of Moses, which is the book of the law, was to remain in administration only until the death clause and the coming of Shiloh, Genesis 49.10. They don't understand that. So it's an all-of-law premise, right? An all-of-law premise because they deny the change, the until change In Genesis 49.10. The death penalty position of Yahushua was paid and the until clause came into effect, allowing all Israel access back into the covenants of promise of which the book of the law of Moses is not a covenant of promise. Most Jews 
do not understand that the blood covenant of Exodus 19 has been made new by Yahushua. You're the only people that are going to give that message. Who else is going to give it? Christian church isn't going to give it. The Hebrew roots and Messianics certainly aren't going to give it. That's why the Jews fear. You have to understand where they're coming from. That's why they fear setting aside any of the instructions in the law as they knew that their lives were actually preserved by the law of Moses or the book of the law. They knew that. They were going to be wiped out. So they're very hesitant in in, in changing anything. But then Revelation confuses us even more and says, well, they're not actually even Jews. They're actually the synagogue of Satan. That's another teaching that we've touched on that makes us extremely unpopular. But then B, the Christian veil, 2 Corinthians 3.13, of confusion in reading the Old Testament, is that most Christians know that the law of Moses was abolished when Yahushua established a new covenant. That's Christianity 101, right? It's like the first thing you learn when you start talking about Shabbat at Calvary Chapel. Oh, you know, no, no, that's abolished. Oh, oh, okay. Well, why is that? Oh, it's a principle. That's just a principle now. Oh, it's not a commandment. Oh, no, it's a principle. Oh, okay, all right. I mean, I believed that for a few years, you know. I mean, they set me straight right off the bat because I had no church background, so I come walking in, you know. My favorite book to begin with was Leviticus and Hebrews, ever since conversion. I love the two. So I'd come back, oh, yeah, look at this. What are you spo- oh, no, no, Matthew, you're not, no, no, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, and my wife, she had the NIV back there, the newly, nearly inspired version. Big pencil marks around, why don't we do this anymore? Really? That's what we, that was our old paradigm. You had to teach us the doctrines of men because we were just reading the Bible and we didn't have any church baggage. And then we accepted the doctrines of men for eight years until finally I said, let's get out of here. Let's start doing Purim and Hanukkah, right? Another 10 years later, here we are. So praise Yahweh for the that, that thorny, bristly road that has been traveled, I pray that you guys never have to travel it, which is my job, right? It should be easier for the next generation. And you guys are getting the message way faster, way quicker. And I speak to people that come to our Sukkot and these young individuals, and they're just fast, quick, right on it. They haven't had to navigate through all the mess because we have beat that path And now you can come travel along. It's great. So the Christian veil of confusion in reading the Old Testament is that most Christians know that the law of Moses was abolished when Yahushua established the new blood covenant. Most Christians do not fully understand that the law of Moses was a distinct law enactment and not the whole of the body of the corpus of the law. Genesis, Exodus. No. The book of the law is a distinct law enactment. Most Christians don't know that. That leads them to a faulty conclusion. So I'm actually becoming a more compassionate, the more aged I get. Because I can understand where these, these 
jumps in thinking happen because of the premise that is established in the beginning is actually on crumbly sand. Right? So, most Christians do not realize that the blood covenant that was made new by Yahushua has Torah teachings and instructions attached to it. Hebrews 8.6 Most Christians set aside too much of the instructions of the covenant because of a misunderstanding of law and grace. The veil is there for both Christian and Jew until their hearts are turned to Yahweh's covenants of promise and follow the teaching and instructions, the Torah of the covenants of promise. So we truly are the elect in these days. Ephesians 2.14 to close. Yahusha, he truly is our peace. He who has made both one. That's the narrow road. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. Remember that wall that Balaam was getting battered up against to the left, to the right? And there at the end, you're met with the donkey and the angel with the drawn sword that will lead you all the way back to the beginning. And you'll move into the Garden of Eden and eventually we'll take off these garments of skin and be clothed in garments of light and transfigured into glory. This is the end goal. We're preparing to go home. This is the righteousness of the saints. And he's gathering from two folds into one, two sticks into one to make one new man. Not an old Judaized man and not an old antinomian lawless man. He's not trying to get you into the church fathers any more than he's trying to get you into the Sanhedrin rabbinical school either. It's the one new man of Ephesians 2.15 because he has abolished and he has now broken down the middle wall of separation. Why? Because he has abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law, the book of the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So easy for people to read over that most important aspect of administration. It's all Torah. Torah contained in ordinances was added because of the, because of the golden calf. It was never agreed to. Torah contained in covenant is for you and I today. But that doesn't mean that you rip out the Torah contained in ordinances. You rightly apply it using the principle of Chabah, dovetailing. The foundation is the covenant. The dovetailing is the law. And there you have a rightly divided word of truth and a correct administration in Yahusha. And this is truly the guarding of your soul unto salvation. Because if you forsake your first love, doesn't matter how many Hebrew words, doesn't matter how long your beard is, how, many, how great you tie your seat seats. If you forget your first love and his administration, then it was all for naught, was it not? Was it not? 
because he brings in the one new man and thus makes the two one and brings forth shalom. So I hope that those that have charged us falsely, as they did Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, would show pause and seriously contemplate the right administration of law. Because it's very easy to tarnish somebody's reputation. But ultimately, it will come back twofold upon your own head. And we would not want that for anybody. So it's really a time of repentance for us all. For us all. For me, sometimes being a little bit too strong and aggressive... And sometimes you can catch that in my voice. And I think even last week, I was a bit too salty. So please, forgive me. I mean, I, I get a lot of pushback and a lot of attack. And I have to pray. And I ask that you would pray for me that I would rise above that. Because when I can get above it, and it's not personal, then it becomes educational. And then that's when redemption happens. Questions, comments in the back. Yes, was the mic on when you said that? It was? Can you touch on the concept of tithing as it relates to the two books? Excellent. The concept of tithing. Firstly, again, it's a commandment, and we let's go and use that very important, very important establishment of when is the first time that the Hebrew word is used in scripture for tithing. Of course, your ma'aser, your tithe, is when... Because many people will say, well, you know, tithing isn't for today. You should only tithe. And then, boom, they automatically go to a Levitical administration and start trying to carve it up under this tri- triennial, all the cycles... But tithing has its foundation in the book of the covenant. When Abraham came and tithed, that's the first reference of a tenth of all. It's a tenth of all to start with. So is tithing for today? For sure and for certain. And it doesn't have its establishment in a Levitical system. It's a tenth of all. So then you've got to talk to your accountant because people are going, well, is that gross? Is it net? Tenth of all. Okay? And then we get this crazy stuff that I hear over, uh, well, I'm tithing of my time. That's That's not biblical. Okay? That's not biblical. Or I'm tithing of, no, it's a tenth of all. Again, it's very important that we do these things biblically and not jump into the Levitical administration of tithing because that is, again, something where you're taking this massive, massive jump. So its foundation is Malkitzedek, of course. That's a great question. I I totally, yeah, great question. Okay, next, next question. In regards to divorce, you didn't touch on the possibility of restoration. Can you explain that? The possibility of restoration. Of course, there is restoration unless 
the man has gone into another woman or the woman has gone into another man and then you cannot reconcile. That is the danger. And that, again, is now taking the premise in the book of the covenant and you're finding a lot more information because now they were doing it because their heart was hard and it was post-golden calf. In Deuteronomy 24, you're going to find a lot more instructions if you get yourself into that situation. So it's better never to have the hard heart, right? And you won't have to get there. But if you do, you can totally reconcile as long as the, the husband and wife, neither party, have gone into another. Yeah, anybody else? Any questions? Because these are good, these are great things. And, and there's a lot of things that do come up that I have missed. But this principle of Chabar is what I really want to communicate to teach us. Um, I've wondered this for decades. I've been confused about the Ten of Meeting. Is that affected by the book of the law, book of the covenant? Or did that come from the book of the law? I mean, was that a result of that? Is that what God wanted? Because there's been a lot of things over the years. Do you have a scripture that you can read me? I can try. What's the first reference to that? Because, yes, I have done a teaching on it, and it's extremely important, but it's not in my immediate recollection because it's quite complicated, and I should touch Um, on that again. Not offhand. um, Well... Right now. Let's address that off, offline and maybe, because um, that's a great question, um, on the, the tent of meeting and the distinction between the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. So, yes, I will uh, give me a little sticky note and I'll bring that and have an answer for you next week. Yeah, what was the verse? Yeah, Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, but there's one way before that. So that, that's, that, again, that's referring back. I want to find that first reference. I'll do my due diligence. Yes. I, I had a question about the, um, because the, the second set of tablets mm. were in the Ark of the Covenant, correct? Correct. So um, I got a little confused just in the way that that came came across because I, I know that that was in the Ark of the Covenant, but that was different than the first set of tablets. Correct. So the first set of tablets were connected, Exodus 20, were connected to the Book of the Covenant, right? That was he, Exodus 19 through 24, 11, first set of tablets. Then you had the breaking of the first set of tablets and then the copy But they were a representation of that which went before. But they were not blood ratified because the blood ratification was with the first set of tablets. So there's still a distinction between the covenant and then uh, Deuteronomy 31 where he finished writing the book of the law by name and handed it to the Levites. Because it was a witness against what they had broken. Correct. So again, what's, you have to distinct the law action with the non, excuse me, the blood action with the non-blood action. Because again, people go um, Exodus 34, and it's in the book of the law, but it says covenant. This is the book of the covenant, and it's in the book of the law, therefore it's all the same. Which is again, 
not understanding covenants, which is why it's important, I think, to go back and do um, look at that teaching we did a few years ago on clearing up covenant confusion, which is huge. I would recommend that. Because, again, Exodus 34, you'll notice there's no blood action there. No blood action. There's no agreement, no proposal, no acceptance, no blood ratification, no covenant confirming meal. It has to be totally distinct and separate from all the other book of the covenant, which are always got those four, four, four contingents. So again, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and grant you shalom. Yevarechacha Yahuwah Vayishmarecha. Yeyeh Yahuwah Panavalecha Vechunecha. Yesa Yahuwah Panavalecha Vayasim Lecha Lecha Shalom. Amen. Amen.